Morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning. If you're a visitor, if it's your first time again, just to give you a special welcome, it's great to have you with us here today. Now, next Sunday, we have a girl called Anna Shanks coming to work at Regent for about two and a half months. Uh, she's coming to be part of the First Serve Gap Year program, and she's coming and doing her placement, her UK church placement here with us uh, from next Saturday through to almost through to Christmas. So this is a picture of Anna. So when you see her next Sunday, you'll all recognize her. And so please do give her a really big welcome when you see her next Sunday or, or next Saturday night at the Polish night. And help her feel really home, please, while she's here with us. It's quite a daunting thing to be away from home for a few months and first time perhaps away from home as a 19-year-old. So give her a real big welcome and uh, make her feel really welcome at, and at home. We, we've had first serve students on placement here ever since first serve started. And about 12 years ago, we had a girl called Aline from Germany. Some of you will remember Aline. She was, I think she was the second student or the first student that we ever had, in fact. And I had to go and collect her from the train station. She just arrived at Central Station. I went down to pick her up and to bring her back home and take her to our house. And the trouble was that on my way back, I got a speeding ticket for doing, get this, 33 in a 30. Now, I didn't know anything about it for a few weeks, but then the letter came in the post, and you open this letter, and you think, you know, what is this? Opened it up, and there it was telling me that I'd broken the law and that I'd been doing 33 miles an hour and a 30 speed limit. And it was offering me a speed awareness course instead of getting three points and a fine. And I was really, really annoyed because I'd been doing 33 miles per hour in what until very recently had been a 40. And so in my head, I was fine. I was just doing a 33. It was, it was actually way below what I thought was the speed limit. But I'd been charged with this, this crime, and the speed limit had changed. And so bang to rights, I got caught by a hidden camera. And so I opted to go for the speed awareness course rather than paying the fine and rather than getting the three points. And although it was a real pain doing the course, it was a whole day out of my kind of schedule, and it was a bit annoying having to do it, I was actually really, really glad that I had done it. Because I do think that it should be a mandatory part of anybody learning to drive. I don't know why it's not part of the process. I don't understand why people who've been driving for years do it when they uh, do 33 and a 30, and yet people learning to drive don't do it. I th really think it should be part of it. The, the concept of the offer of a speed awareness course is that you're educated to the reality of the dangers of driving at speed, amongst other things. So for instance, if you hit somebody perhaps at 33, 34 miles an hour, they're much less likely to live than if you hit someone at 27, 28 miles an hour. That really does make a difference just by dropping uh, a few miles an hour. But if having been educated in the realities of how dangerous to, it is to drive at speed, particularly in built up areas, if you then continue to break the law and drive too fast, if you then get caught again, then there's no mercy. You go straight into the fines process, and you get three points. And eventually, of course, if you get too many fines, you'll lose your license. If you receive a knowledge of the truth about the danger of speeding, and then you go on to ignore that, and you go ahead and speed, then there's no mercy left for you. And that's actually a really good and balanced way to operate laws, I think. It's a really good idea. And actually, it's a very Bible-based concept. Because in the same way, once a person who knows the truth about God, if they then reject that truth and reject God and continue to live their own way, then the offer of grace, the offer of mercy that God makes to everyone is eventually withdrawn. And instead, all that is left is the certainty of facing God's wrath and his judgment. And that's what the passage that we're looking at today in the book of Hebrews is really all about. 
We're working our way through the book of Hebrews here at Regent. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, people who were Jews who'd trusted in Jesus sometime between about 33 AD and probably the late 60s AD. And although most of them were continuing to live for Jesus, as you find as you read through this book of Hebrews, some of them were obviously under pressure to go back to their old lives in Judaism. And some of them were doubting and questioning whether they should continue to trust in Jesus and live for him. And some of them clearly had abandoned their faith in Jesus and got back to their old life. And, and the first 10 chapters of this book are all about demonstrating to them that Jesus is infinitely superior to everything they used to believe as Jews, as good as that was. And that all of the Old Testament of the Bible basically was one big signpost pointing forwards to the arrival of Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And the author is screaming at his readers effectively over and over again, don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to your old life. Stay with Jesus. So with that in mind, let's read today's passage, which is Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it and to just follow along as I read it. If you haven't, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it to you. Hebrews 10, and we're going to read 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man or woman deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The people the book of Hebrews was written to were, were Jews that had outwardly professed their faith in Jesus and their allegiance to Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They'd embraced Jesus as being the Messiah, the promised one for Israel. But it seems that some of them were turning their backs on Jesus and they were going back to their old life in Judaism, uh, embracing Judaism the Jewish faith, Judaism again, including the system of offering sacrifices for sins, which we've seen over these last few weeks, had come to an end because of Jesus. And so the writer says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now he's not talking about somebody who has genuinely trusted in Jesus and yet still finds themselves falling into sin from, to, from time to time. And he's not even talking about somebody who has genuinely trusted in Jesus and yet sometimes chooses to deliberately sin. Because if we're honest, everybody who has trusted in Jesus will still let God down. And they'll still fall into sin from time to time. At time, to time. And, and sometimes they do that by making the very deliberate choice to sin. I certainly do. And I'm sure if we're all honest that we'd admit that we all do. It's not just kind of, oh, I fell into sin without realizing it. We make a deliberate choice from time to time to sin and to go our own way, even though we trusted in Jesus. That is not what the author here is talking about, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. And, and we know that because the writer says this in chapter 4.16. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Despite the fact that we still sin, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we can approach 
God's throne of grace, no matter how badly we might have messed up. And that's because it's a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment for us. For the believer in Jesus, it's a throne of grace. Grace simply means that God treats us in a way that we don't deserve. When we sin, what we deserve is God's punishment, the punishment of a holy God, his righteous anger and wrath against our sin. That's what we deserve. But if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then instead of receiving what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. We get God's grace, which means he, he forgives us. He still accepts us, even though we sinned against him, no matter what that sin might have been, and, and even if it was very deliberate. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If and when we sin, even if it's been very deliberate, if we've genuinely and truly trusted in Jesus, then he is there in heaven before God's throne, that throne of grace, representing us because he's already dealt with our sin. And we've thought about that this morning as we've taken bread and wine together, the fact that Jesus has already dealt with our sin. So no matter how badly we might let God down, and even if that's been very, very deliberate, if we've genuinely trusted in Jesus and, as, and we've surrendered our lives to him, then we are forgiven. All our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Not only are we forgiven, but we've been made holy, as holy as Jesus, as staggering as that might be. We saw that a few weeks ago, didn't we, in Hebrews 10, verse 10, which says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Not until the next sin, not until the next sacrifice, but once and for all. If we've genuinely trusted in Jesus, then not only are we forgiven, but we are now holy. We're saints. We sang about the saints and the angels singing. We are saints. We're holy ones. That is now our eternal identity, and that can never be changed. Nothing you can do, nothing anybody else can do, nothing Satan can do can ever change your new identity as a holy one. So please don't read verse 26, and, and, and lots of Christians I know over the years have, have really been troubled by this passage in the New Testament. They think, well, you know, I, I do go on sinning. I've, I've become a Christian, but I still sin. I still mess up, and sometimes that's really deliberate. Does that mean then there's no sacrifice for me? Have I, have I run out of God's grace? Am I doomed? Because that's kind of how it reads at first glance. That's not what it means. Don't read verse 26 where it says that if we deliberately keep on sinning, all we can expect is the raging fire of God's judgment. Don't think that that applies to you if you have genuinely trusted in Jesus. Because it doesn't. You are forgiven, you are now holy, and nothing can change that. And nobody can change that. If you have trusted in Jesus, then there will never come a point where the value of the sacrifice of Jesus runs out or its power and effectiveness is, is kind of used up. Jesus will never say, I've paid for your sins up to this point, but I'm not prepared to, to forgive any further sins. Jesus is never going to say, you've been deliberately sinning, so I have had enough of you. If I'd known that you were going to sin like this, I wouldn't have saved you. I wouldn't have died for you. Jesus will never get to that place because your identity is a done deal. It is past, present, and future. You can never outsin God's grace. You will never outrun God's grace. You will never use God's grace up. That's why it's grace. It's not what we deserve. So if verse 26 isn't describing a believer in Jesus who sometimes sins or even deliberately chooses to sin, which, let's face it, we all do, then who is it describing? Well, what the writer is describing for us in detail in verse, 20, in verse 29 is willful, deliberate sin, which specifically involves deliberately denying the deity of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. 
It's about denying that Jesus was and is God. It's about rejecting who Jesus said he was and who Jesus says he is and who the Bible teaches that he is, which of course is that he's God come as a human being. The people the writer was describing had decided, for, for whatever reason, they'd come to a point of deciding, well, actually, although I've, I've, tr- I've professed publicly my faith in Jesus as the Messiah, God come as a human being to, to save his people, actually, I've decided he isn't. And actually, I don't believe he really is God in the flesh. And, and, and effectively, he's just another man. He might have been a good man, but he's not God. He's not the Messiah. And as a consequence of that, they believed his shed blood had no more value than anybody else's shed blood. His death was no different to anybody else's death. In fact, they were treating it, as the verse says here, as being common or unholy. And therefore, they've decided that the new covenant, this new agreement between God and mankind, which Jesus established by shedding his blood, is actually totally invalid and worthless. And so they've gone back to their old life. They've gone back to Judaism and they're putting their trust again in those sacrifices in the temples rather than continuing to trust in Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice on the cross. Verse 29 talks about such a person trampling the Son of God underfoot as if he were litter or kind of fallen leaves on the pavement. And it talks about them treating Jesus' blood as an unholy thing. The Greek word literally means common. In other words, Jesus' death is no different to anybody else's death. That's where they've arrived at in their thinking. They've rejected who Jesus is. And and that's because they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected his claim to be the Son of God. They've they've rejected the belief that Jesus is God come as a human being. And and so if a person has received the knowledge of truth, they've heard all about Jesus. They've heard about who he is and what he's done for them. They've professed to have believed and trusted in him. But then at some point, they decide to turn their back on that knowledge of the truth and on Jesus himself, which is, of course, in itself a, an act of sin. If they deliberately keep on sinning by doing just that, by rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus, then there's no longer any sacrifice available. The reality is that despite professing faith in Christ outwardly, they were never really genuinely born again. And they've now turned their backs on Jesus. And when a person does that, they put themselves in a position where they can't be forgiven because they refuse to believe in the one who can forgive them. In verse 2 he says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. These people have rejected Jesus and they've gone back to Judaism. And they've put themselves under the law of Moses, which was this package of rules and regulations that God gave to the people of Israel via Moses 1,400 years or so earlier. And that was, of course, the headline rules were the the Ten Commandments. And under the law of Moses, if somebody uh, deliberately committed certain sins and therefore rejected the law and were effectively rejecting God, then they had to be put to death, as long as there were at least two witnesses. And that's a kind of principle which runs right through the Bible, the importance of establishing everything by two witnesses. So if a person was put to death for rejecting the law of Moses, then how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who was treated as an unholy or as a common thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. If a person rejected God by breaking his law under the old covenant, and as a result was put to death, how much more do they deserve God's wrath if they treat Jesus like this? They, they treat Jesus like something that they've trodden in, that they've rejected his claim to be the Son of God, and they've insulted the Holy Spirit, called here the spirit of grace, 
God's grace treating them in a way that they didn't deserve was available to them through the Holy Spirit. But in rejecting Jesus, they've insulted, they've despised, and actually outraged the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that those who reject Jesus, including the kind of people described in this passage, will sadly one day face God's wrath as sure as night follows day. Because of who God is, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished and undealt with. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer here quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, where, where, he, where God says that he will judge and punish those who sin against him until or unless they come to a place uh, and, and, and come to a place of asking for forgiveness. And then he says what I think is, for me, one of the most sobering verses in the whole of the Bible. This is what he says, it is a dreadful thing, a terrifying thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. When a person sins, they're sinning against God. Every sin ultimately is a rejection of God. And it's a terrifying concept, a terrifying thought, to fall into God's hands if we've rejected him and if we've sinned against him. Going back to my driving offense, can you imagine if instead of doing 33 in a 30, I'd been driving at 70 in a 30, and, and when I was driving like that, I'd hit a young child and killed it, and then I was caught by the police, and their means of justice was to hand me over to the parents of that child. That would be a terrifying prospect, because I would deserve their, their, their rightful wrath against me. I would know that they'd have every right to avenge their loss. And the same is true of God, only so much infinitely more. If a person rejects Jesus and sins against him and wants nothing to do with him, which is a sin in itself, then one day they will be in God's hands. And that, as this verse says, is a dreadful thing, a terrifying thing, to be in the hands of the God whose son they've rejected. And you know, it might be that you're here this morning and you have yet to accept the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've yet to surrender your life to him. Well, you know, failing to accept Jesus is just the same as actually willfully rejecting him. The same fate awaits the people who, re who fail to accept Jesus as those who actively reject him. One day, those people who've done that will fall into the hands of the living God, and that will be a terrible and a dreadful thing. So can I urge you this morning, if you're someone who's yet to take that step and accept Jesus as your, as your Lord and Savior, can I urge you to think really seriously about who Jesus is? and where you stand in relation to Jesus this morning. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which is probably the vast majority of people here this morning, then not only have you been forgiven, but you've also been made holy, as holy and as righteous and as perfect in God's eyes as Jesus is. But that doesn't mean we don't still sin. Maybe I'm the only person here who's trusted in Jesus and still struggles with sin. I suspect probably not, if we're really honest. And sometimes we're very deliberate in our sin. It's not just something we kind of accidentally fall into. We make a very deliberate choice to sin in one way or another. And it's amazing to know that as we've already seen that when we do sin, Jesus is still there representing us before God, before that throne of grace. Nothing we can do can ever change our new identity as holy ones. It's a done deal. Jesus' once for all sacrifice has been applied to our lives by our faith and we are now holy ones. But that is not an excuse to sin. And we're not meant to sin. John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin. Just because we've been forgiven doesn't mean we can just go out and live as we want. 
when we consider what Jesus did to deal with our sin, and we've taken time to consider that this morning, haven't we? We've taken bread and wine, a vivid picture of Jesus' body broken for us there on the cross, the, his blood shed for us. When we consider what Jesus did for us, to die there on the cross to deal with our sin, then we should never want to sin again. And whilst it's really important that we understand that our sins have been dealt with past, present, and future, and that we're totally free from condemnation, and we can approach God's throne with, with kind of freedom, it's important that we understand just how serious sin is. This passage isn't talking about someone who occasionally sins, or even someone who, re who regularly and deliberately sins. It's talking about the specific sin of rejecting Jesus and who he is. But reading these verses is nevertheless helpful in seeing just how serious sin is, no matter what it is. Because every time we sin, even though if we've trusted in him, even though if we've trusted in Jesus, he's there representing us and defending us before the throne of God, our sin is nevertheless just like trampling the Son of God underfoot. We're, we're treating his blood as an unholy thing, perhaps for, for a different reason than these readers were. But nevertheless, we're kind of doing the same thing. Every time we sin, we're really just treating Jesus with contempt. It's contempt that he's forgiven, praise God, because he's a God of grace, but it's contempt nonetheless. I think it's just good for us to remind ourselves of this and remind ourselves how serious sin really is. Yes, we're forgiven. Isn't that amazing? That's wonderful. We, we're, we're recipients of God's grace if we trusted in Jesus, but sin is still really, really serious. Just because we've been forgiven, just because we've been made holy, we shouldn't treat sin casually or as if it's no big deal because it really is a big deal as the writer says in chapter 6 when we sin it's as if we're crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace so yes we're forgiven and we've been made holy and we're free from condemnation if we've trusted in Jesus and we've got this brand new identity and a relationship with God that nobody and nothing can change and alter or end but let's never use that as an excuse to treat sin lightly or to paper over stuff that we know that we need to deal with in our lives. The specific sin the writer is addressing in this passage was Jews who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as their Lord and God, but who had never really been born again. And that's why they then didn't continue, they didn't persevere, because their faith wasn't genuine. They weren't genuine believers, and so when persecution and pressure came along, they went running back to Judaism. They rejected Jesus. They trampled him underfoot like he was something that they trodden in. And they refused to believe that he was the unique son of God that he claimed to be. They refused to believe that he was the Messiah. His blood shed, his death was nothing different, no different to anyone else's death. Now, none of us are likely to go back to Judaism because I'm not aware of any of us having been converted Jews. Maybe there, there is somebody here this morning, but I'm not aware of that. So what is the equivalent of this for us then this morning? If, if this isn't a trap that we're ever like, this specific thing isn't something we're going to do, what, what, what's the equivalent of this for us? In what may why, might we fall into a similar trap or be tempted to? Well, one, may, one way might be for a person to profess faith in Christ and, and leave behind a life of sexual morality, for instance. And the Bible defines sexual morality as any sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. And then having left that life behind and lived as a believer in Jesus and as one of his followers of what, for a while, they might have been baptized, they might even have become a church member and so on, they then decide that the, the lure and the temptation of that old life is stronger than their desire to follow Jesus. And they return back to that old life of sexual morality. 
that relationship, that pleasure, that experience is more important to them than Jesus. Another way might be for a person who is a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist who then professes faith in Christ, but then perhaps sometime later due to, to, to pressure or persecution, they decide to reject Jesus and, and, and renounce him and return to their old life and their old way of living again. Another way might be for a person who's really wealthy and obsessed with money and professions to profess faith in Christ, but then after a while to decide to go back to that old life of being living for wealth and, and, and pleasure. So they renounce and reject Jesus and go back to a life of materialism. Another way might be for a person to profess faith in Christ and believe all the things that the Bible clearly teaches about Jesus and about the Christian faith, but then over time they begin to deconstruct and reject the teachings of the Bible. And they start to reject things like the deity of Jesus, that he's God, come as a human being, or they reject the virgin birth or the resurrection or God's definition of a man and a woman. And they might not go back to their old life as such, but they more or less create a new life or a new reality for themselves where they continue to claim that they are followers of Jesus, but the Jesus that they claim to follow isn't the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus they've invented that suits their life and their friendship groups and their social structures. And sadly, over the last few years, there's been a whole load of Christian leaders who have done just that. They've received the knowledge of truth, a knowledge of the truth, and then they've decided to reject that truth and invent their own truth, which is a, a completely warped version of the truth of the Bible. And, and, and tragically, they've led lots of people, other people, away from the truth of the Bible and into that false teaching and into those heresies. They're what the Bible calls wolves in sheep's clothing. And in fact, the Bible, uh, particularly John and Paul, uh, as they write lots of the New Testament, warn repeatedly about wolves coming in dressed as, as, as sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and in doing so, they're sinning and rejecting Jesus. And for those people, sadly, there's only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire from God that will consume them. This passage is a really serious and sobering one. It's not a lot of fun, is it? It's a kind of really serious passage. But it's one that we need to read and study, and that's why systematic Bible teaching is so important. Otherwise, we'll just preach our favorite topics and the nice fluffy verses that we like. Systematic Bible teaching forces us to engage with the Bible in its entirety. And it's something that we need to hear because we need to study the Bible in its entirety because it's always possible that there might be somebody here today that's professed faith in Jesus. Maybe you've professed faith in Jesus. You might have been baptized. You might be a church member. You might be serving in church. But you've never really been saved. You've never really been born again. You just kind of got caught up with stuff and went along with it all. You might have said a prayer. You might have been baptized. But those things in and of themselves don't make a person a genuine born-again believer in Jesus. And if despite professing faith in Christ and maybe even being baptized and maybe even being a church member, that person hasn't genuinely put their faith and trust in Jesus, then when the opposition and persecution and temptations come, which sooner or later they will then they'll end up returning to their old life. Because those who are genuinely saved will persevere to the end, the Bible teaches. So it's always good to examine our lives and ask ourselves, if we've, have we genuinely really surrendered our lives to Jesus? Have we really and truly put our faith and trust in him? Wouldn't it be tragic to think that we're a Christian just because we maybe said a prayer or, something, or did something in church uh, and actually we weren't genuinely believers? That would be tragic. If we have genuinely trusted in Jesus, then we can celebrate the fact this morning that our sins are completely gone. We've been forgiven. We've been made holy. 
And we can approach God without fear, without condemnation, knowing that he's seated on a throne of grace and he welcomes us into his arms every time we come to him, and knowing that we can never out-sin God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, the Bible says. And even when that sin is very deliberate, the power of Jesus' sacrifice for us will never run out. We can never exhaust the effect of the cross in our lives. But as earlier, we took bread and, and wine together to remember the great cost of Jesus' sacrifice and of our salvation. Let's make sure we don't treat sin lightly. Let's never abuse God's grace. Let's take a few moments to pause and reflect and think about what we've looked at this morning. And if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today, then can I encourage you to respond to him today? Don't, don't ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. Let's just bow our heads. If you're comfortable doing that, maybe close your eyes and just take a few moments to, to reflect on what we've said and what we've looked at this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are seated on a throne of grace this morning. We thank you that if we've genuinely put our trust in Jesus, Father, thank you that we can come running to you any time, day or night, knowing that your arms are open wide, knowing that you receive us because you're seated on a throne that is a throne of grace. You treat us in a way we don't deserve to be treated. But we thank you. We worship you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's made all this possible by dying on the cross for us. We thank you. We praise you. We celebrate that. We thank you that we can boldly approach your throne. We thank you that we can come running to you all because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Father, I pray that this morning we would take sin seriously. Help us never to abuse your grace. Help us not to take it lightly or cheaply. Help us to pursue righteousness, to live holy lives because we are holy people. Because you've made us holy, help us to be holy in our everyday lives. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that they put their faith and trust in you. Whatever their background, whatever their past is, Lord, would you save them this morning? Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in Jesus. We thank you that it's through Jesus alone that all this is possible. And we worship you this morning. We give you thanks for him in Jesus' name. Amen. The band are going to come and lead us again in worship as we close the service. If you'd like someone to pray with you, then please feel free to come down the front as we're singing, or you can come down after the service is over. Uh, John and Linda are going to be down here at the front, so uh, don't feel you need to rush off. You don't need to do that during the final song, or they'll be around for a good while after the service, and they'd be delighted to pray with you about anything or about maybe something that was said uh, or you've heard this morning. So let, let's sing together. Thanks, Daniel.